Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Look at that. You're back again for another episode of Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as is typical, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there. So uh, today I thought we would chat a bit. Uh, we're going to do a, another one of our infamous two-part episodes uh, about a company. In this case, we're talking about the company Adobe. Yes. We, uh, we've had... People ask us about specific Adobe products in the past or products that used to be owned by somebody else who, that are now owned by Adobe. And uh, we were talking about what we wanted to do this week. And I think we wanted to – we decided that we were going to try this adventure. And it is an adventure because there's a lot going on for a company that's that's not as old as some of the others we've talked about, like uh, IBM, for example. Right, or HP. Or HP. General Electric. You know, these companies that have century-long histories. Yeah. In this case, we're talking about a, a company that was uh, that was originally founded in 1982. But before we get to that, first of all, we should probably mention, if you're not familiar with uh, Adobe overall, uh, really what their focus was early, early on was all about uh, – the, the, the digital information you see on a display, how do you replicate that reliably into things like a, a hard copy format? Yeah. You know, things like if you have a certain font showing up on a screen, how can you create some software that will allow you to make that font translate over into, say, a hard copy uh, form like a, on a printer? Or just how do you create new types of fonts so that you aren't limited to a single set of uh, characters when you are creating documents for uh, the digital formats. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you don't want everything to look exactly the same and uniform. I mean, you, you want to personalize stuff as much as you can and customize it. So that was really what the Adobe founders were thinking about. And those founders were John Warnock and Charles Geschk. That's right. Um, as a matter of fact, this this whole thing um, you you may be thinking of as sort of a, a PC type thing. I mean, 
um, the technology we're talking about here led to the popularity of desktop publishing. Yes. But the the seeds of this technology were planted quite a bit before um, PCs ended up on every desktop in you know the corporate world and on on our. Uh, our laptops at home and all the other stuff. Um, it really started in, in the late 1970s at a, a completely different company that, that you probably have heard of before with an X at the beginning and an X at the end. It's Xerox. That's right. Um, Xerox was known for being a technological leader, but they liked to keep their technologies to themselves. I yeah. mean, we, we've talked in the past about, uh, Apple. They're, they're quote unquote famous for, uh, having, uh, their, their, Graphical user interface, the GUI, stolen, yes. quote unquote, uh, allegedly from, by from Xerox, from Xerox and their uh, Palo Alto Research Center by by uh, well, actually various people who who uh, came in to see it, and among those being Steve Jobs. I know there were others from yeah. other companies. Well, I mean, Steve Jobs has you know he 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 was famous for saying at one point during an interview that you know good artists copy, great artists steal, right? Right. And this was sort of kind of. A part of what he was talking about, you know, the the graphic user interface and even the mouse yeah. were technologies developed at this uh, Palo Alto Research Center or Park. That's the, the yeah. Xerox Park. It's it's a famous famous research center because so many different uh, technologies that we use today got their start in this research center and. Uh, Either through licensing or outright theft have finally made their way to the general public. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on a minute there, Jonathan. Okay, so when I said that, I was really not thinking clearly. Xerox Park did refine and help popularize things like the computer mouse and the graphic user interface. But in fact, those were not invented at Xerox Park. A man by the name of Douglas Engelbart first got those those concepts moving in the early 60s, and it would be a decade later when Xerox would really take advantage of them. So I just wanted to correct that before all of you send all your emails ever. Yeah, it's it's um it's kind of interesting. We should we should eventually do a, an episode on on this group of people. I, because I have they, a feeling it'd be at least two, but yes, I agree. <laughs> but because they came up with so much, and and that's in fact how Warnock and, and Gesch met. They were working on um uh Technologies that would that would work with both uh, bitmapped graphics and uh, well graphics and, and fonts together. Um, two of these these technologies were called Jam, uh, which is capital J A capital M and Interpress. Um, and Xerox actually decided they were going to use uh, Interpress as their own standard, but they refused to license it to other people. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, it was, they were holding it close to their vest, if you will, uh, pardon the, uh, uh, gaming, um, symbolism Analogy, there. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were really, they wanted to keep it to themselves. And, and both Gashk and Warnock saw that something like this could, could really help other people. And they decided to, uh, to make a go of it. Yeah. So in 1982, they go and found Adobe system. Well, then it was just Adobe. Right. Uh, so they found a, a company called Adobe. Uh, they secured two and a half million dollars in seed money from Hembrecht and Quist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they get this money that to found the company, uh, and it was you saw where it was named what it was named after um, Adobe. It was named after a creek that ran through Warnock's backyard in Los Altos, California. Interesting. Uh, uh, they had uh, at that time they had no physical office space in 1982. What they did have were two employees, mm-hmm. just Warnock and Geshk, and zero dollars in revenue. Uh, and uh, uh, Warnock's wife, Marva, uh, designed the first Adobe logo. Now, that is not the same logo that Adobe uses today. They've actually revised that logo a couple times, and I'm sure we'll mention it as it happens um, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we work our way through the timeline. But yes, it was uh, John Warnock's wife who designed the very first one. And um, so wait, wait. She was a designer. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It turns out, you know, what, I mean, what the whole company was about originally, originally was how to reproduce, to how to accurately reproduce, if I can split an infinitive, uh, the uh, the digital text and graphics you would see on a screen onto paper. That mm-hmm. was the original 
focus of this company. Now, since then, it has diversified quite a bit, although not, oh, as, yeah. not as much as some other companies you can think of. Like there are technology companies out there that have diversified so much that there are, if you were to look at two different branches of that company, it would be very hard to draw any similarities between the two. Like we, we've talked about some of these companies that got so big and so complex that you know, it was almost like you're talking about completely different companies when you're talking about different divisions. That that's not exactly true with Adobe. Oh, you mean like like GE makes you know toaster ovens and jet engines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good example. Um, <laughs> and uh, HP's those, those are, medical technology and yes. desktop printers. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's yeah. Their their diversification has been more uh, sort of uh, I don't know how sort of like the uh, product lines you see in the store. Like, oh, well, you know, we've, we've always made chocolate and vanilla flavors, but now we're making mango. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. It, uh, their, their, their technologies are very much in the, uh, the design world. Right. So then they, they started to develop a, uh, a, a programming language. Mm-hmm. Technically, it's a dynamically typed concatenative, because I can't say these words, programming language. I can say concatenation. Concatenative? Concatenative. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, yeah. I'm like, I look at them like, I have never seen this word before and I'm just going to ruin it. Anyway, it's a programming language called PostScript. Yes. And uh, this sort of forms the foundation for the, the products that Adobe would develop over its early, early years as a company. Mm-hmm. So that all happens in 82 and in 83 – they officially incorporate in the state of California. Mm-hmm. So uh, Adobe becomes an official company, and they issue their first PostScript license. Uh, they also off- open their first office space in Mountain View, California, which, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the technology region in California, that's Google's stomping ground these days. Uh, it's a lot of people's stomping ground, frankly. Yeah. Well, Google stomps bigger than most companies. Uh and and so they the first license for postscript technology goes to another notable company in the technology world another notable company in the technology wor- world that has a a name that begins with the letter a as a matter of fact apple that is correct apple's the first licensee of postscript technology to help to determine these uh the the displays fonts and things of that nature on Apple computers. Uh, During that year, so this is technically the second year of Adobe, but the first year of incorporation, Mm -hmm. the company makes $83,000 in revenue, and they have 13 employees. So the sky is the limit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, if you'll remember, we've talked about, uh, you know, of course, Steve Jobs many times, but um, he, he had done some design work. Uh, back when he was studying in college, he was fascinated with uh, typography. And one of the things that he really wanted for the Macintosh computer, which, if you'll remember, launched in 1984, um, was its ability to handle fonts. Well, that's thanks in large part to Adobe's PostScript technology. Mm. Hey, I didn't trip, to, trip over that word. I tripped over trip. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, none of us are perfect. <laughs> I... But, yeah, it, it's uh, – this start started a a close relationship between Apple and Adobe, which mm-hmm. was, which has not always been a smooth relationship. Even no. even when even in these early days, because Adobe was sort of for a while the only game in town when it came to font technology mm-hmm. and font development, and so they could kind of um, depending upon whom you asked. <laughs> If you asked Apple, Apple would say their prices are getting too high. You know, we're having to pay uh, uh, licensing fees that are um, unreasonably high. And we'll get more into that as that relationship develops. But in 84, this is when uh, the, this really starts to come into play because uh, Adobe enters into a licensing agreement to develop type one versions of Linotype fonts. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the basis of this, this font war between Adobe and Apple, which sounds like it's, you know, kind of boring, but it's really interesting to me because you're talking about something that's fundamental to the way that a computer displays information to a user. So it is something that's really, really important. And 
if you know if you do have a, a essentially what if what if in effect is a monopoly on that then you hold a lot of power yeah you know it doesn't seem like it would be much you're like it's a font what, what what's the big deal no 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 yeah. no 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 let, let me tell you just as a personal anecdote uh-huh. because you know in, in 1983 84 i was you know 12 13 years old um and uh you know I, my uh, my older brother you know, if he wanted to to uh type up a paper for class he got over to the typewriter and typed it and if you wanted fonts, uh, you know what? Back when we talked about IBM, we had a Selectric typewriter at home. If you wanted to change the font, you had to change the ball on the typewriter. And there, those were not super cheap. We only had, I think, maybe two, um, and they looked like you had typed it. You know, and if you make a mistake, you know, white out or go back over it or type it again. So uh, my friend, I have a friend who uh, who got one of the very first Macintoshes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we took great delight on in typing all the stuff out and all the different fonts and printing it out. And it was like, wow, that's really, I mean, that's just so cool. I had a, a printer for my Amiga that I got around the same time that mm-hmm. had no descenders. Um, and for those of you who are font people, you know what I'm talking about. But the Gs in this case, uh, the, the lowercase G with the, the thing that hangs below the line, the baseline of the font, um, the G was hiked up so that the bottom of the, the little uh, tail on the G was as low as, let's say, the bottom of a B or an right. H. So it looked all wonky. And I got I got marked off for that in class. But the way the way this was done brought uh, just made all this this technology more readily available for a lot less than you would find it. If you wanted something like that published, you would have to pay a lot of money for it. And it, well, it was a lot of money, but not at the same level that you would have if you had it done professionally. So right. making these fonts available, the, the, the linotype fonts um, or the ITC fonts, the International um, is it Typography Foundation. Something like that. Uh, let me, I'll look for that in a second while you're talking. But uh, yeah, because um, I know I just saw it here a second ago. Where was it? Um, but uh, yeah, I, the ITC fonts were, you know, those were available to people who were professionals. And now all of a sudden, you know, making them available to people with a desktop computer for maybe, you know, two or three thousand dollars. Yeah, you're talking about much the, cheaper. the birth of desktop publishing, which, you know, suddenly it's it's hard to kind of put this into perspective today. But you imagine that if you go back far enough, publishing something was beyond the means of the average person because they just didn't have access to the sort of typesetting equipment they would need to to create, layout, and 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 produce things uh, on their own. So mm-hmm. without going to some other company and ha- hiring them to do it, it was really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And this was suddenly creating the ability for the average person to get into that, and uh, that was a very powerful thing. In fact, that was one of the one of the main reasons why personal computers were really taking off because not only were they being uh, thought of as as uh, an educational tool for kids or a gaming device, depending on how you were looking at it. Or it all also, of the above. Right. It also became a, a, a true workstation for people who were into this this uh, publishing arena. Mm-hmm. And in 1984, that same year, uh, they relocated their office to Palo Alto, uh, which is stomping grounds for This Week in Tech. Um, <laughs> as well as other companies. And their revenues hit $2.2 million. And 68% of that revenue came from Apple royalty payments. So Apple royalty payments for the PostScript licenses are made up more than half of that $2.2 million in revenue. And at that point, they had 27 employees. Mm-hmm. So moving up to uh, 85, that's when... Adobe actually ships PostScript Level 1. So this is beyond the licensing. They're shipping it as a product. Mm -hmm. And they also did the first PostScript printer. Yes. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, ITC is the International Typeface Corporation, and I Ah. apologize. I had it in the back of my head, and then I I switched pages on my notes. Uh, It's it's easy for me to get those acronyms and, and, and abbreviations all mixed up, too. But, uh, yeah, so 85, still early days, but... So in 84, they made 2.2 million. In 85, they made 4.6 million. So they more than doubled their revenue. They mm-hmm. went from 27 employees to 44 employees. So they didn't quite double their workforce, but they did double their revenue. And they uh, began to uh, publish the PostScript language reference manual, which is also known as the Red Book. And if you take a look at that first publication, that first edition, 
You'll know why it's called the Red Book. It's <laughs> enormous and it's red. So, <laughs> and it's a book. Yeah, it is also a book. So there we have the mystery solved. Why it is called the Red Book it is big. It is a book. It is red. You are a silly man, Jonathan Strickland. I can't help it. And so in 1986, so four years after they first founded this company, and uh, three years after they incorporated, they launched their initial public offering or IPO. So this is where Adobe switches over from being a privately owned company to a public company, publicly traded company. And their opening stock price at that time is $11 a share. Uh, Since they went public, Mm -hmm. uh, they have had that stock split several times. So they've done two for one splits on multiple occasions. So which means that, you know, they've, uh, the, the, the value of the company has gone up as they have actually doubled the number of stocks that were available. Uh, at the current stock price is, uh, as, as of the recording of this podcast, which is at the end of October 2012, and this is pre-trading dollars here, it's $33.40 a share. So you figure, the stock has multiplied several times mm-hmm. since they launched, and the price itself has gone up. So the value of the company has increased uh, dramatically since they went public, which you would hope, right? Right. It's uh, to say otherwise is what we call a bad thing. <laughs> uh, anyway, they also uh, had their font library hit over 100 fonts at this time. Now. Since then, we're talking about fonts that are – there are thousands of them. But that was big news back in 1986. Thousands? Well, that's an understatement. But Chillions. still, But still. Chillions I'm talking fonts. about the Adobe font library in particular. Oh, poo. Okay. And uh, that's when – that's also when uh, uh, another thing with Apple happened, although it was not uh, uh, particularly about the licensing. It was uh, a fellow who came from Apple – he was a developer on a computer called the Lisa, which we talked about, I think, a couple times in this podcast mm-hmm. uh, in other episodes. But the Lisa computer was not what you would call a success. No. But uh, uh, Tom Malloy, who worked at Apple, joined Adobe and began to design typeface and PostScript products and would climb quite high in the executive uh, branch of Adobe. Uh, so that was an interesting Development, I thought. Moving on uh, to 1987, mm-hmm. unless you have anything to say about 86. No, no, no. Adobe publishes one of their flagship products, uh, in the early days anyway, Illustrator. Ah. Let it, let, let people create PostScript-based graphics. Now, essentially PostScript graphics are line art. So when if you've heard our, our episode where we talked about the different types of graphics, computer graphics... Uh, line art is has some advantages over bitmapped art in this specifically when it comes to scaling. Mm-hmm. So when you change the scale of line art, you don't have to worry about uh, problems with resolution. No, not generally because um, uh, vector graphics basically the the computer can interpolate. Uh, you know, the starting and ending points of each of the lines in the line art. Yeah, it's all based on math. Yeah, so, you know, math is what computers compute. So right. uh, really all it, all it takes is for it to do that. Now, if you're uh, shrinking a bitmapped graphic, it's not a, such a problem. The computer just makes, uh, you know, a decision on which of the pixels it needs to toss out. But right. expanding because, it because, it because a bitmapped image do so well. is a collection of pixels, right? right? So you're think of a bitmapped image as a bunch of different dots of different colors and mm-hmm. – you know, the more dots you have, the greater the resolution in general. And if you, but when you expand a bitmapped picture, you do not get more dots to fill in the space no. between the dots. So eventually those dot, the space between the dots gets quite large. And that's where you start getting the problems with resolution. So, uh, that's why we talk about if you have a, a camera with a certain number of, of megapixels, the more megapixels there are in general, that means the the larger you can you can uh, scale up an image before you start encountering problems with resolution. Mm-hmm. In general, there are other elements that, of course, play very heavily into an image's quality, and we've talked about that in our digital photography episodes. Right. But but uh, that that was one of the things that gave artists a new tool was this Illustrator suite of software that would 
let them create graphics within uh, this this PostScript language. Yeah, now the, the PostScript pretty much lived inside printers um, at this point. And uh, according to uh, according to what Adobe has said, um, the in, the inspiration for Illustrator came from John Warnock watching his wife Marva work. And yeah, he remember he, she was the one who de- who developed the Adobe logo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he what he was doing was he was watching her her draw on mm-hmm. paper and said, you know, it would be really cool if we could use PostScript to do this to give designers the ability to use a computer to work on design. Um, you know, and, and, and make this a tool for real designers to do real work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of, you know, what was going on. Uh, an engineer named Mike Schuster, um, was behind Illustrator. He was the one who was assigned the task of making this happen. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't terribly inexpensive. You know, when it was released in, in 1988, it was $495. But again, this is taken in context. Uh, other other um, software that was similar in in uh, in its kind were you know was much more expensive than that. So this was uh, it gave people an opportunity to do that and and to use the uh, the pen tool, which was more of an approximation of drawing by hand. Of course, at that point, uh, I think most people were using a mouse with it than a, a pen. I think, right. um, I think it was probably uh, a few years later when it became more common to use a, a, a pen and a tablet to do it. But, you know, still that was a different way to, to do illustration on a computer. And it was it was a popular tool. Yep. Uh, by this time, the revenues for Adobe had hit about $39 million and they had 172 employees. And 49% of their revenue at this point came from Apple. So Apple playing a diminishing role in their overall revenue, still a very important one. I mean, 49% of 39 million is no chump change. Uh, but at this point, they also started to license PostScript to companies like little companies with little names like HP and hmm. IBM. I think I've heard of those guys. Yeah. And of course, IBM at this time was really heavily involved in the personal computer uh, realm, they would eventually kind of uh, step away from that, but uh, not at the moment. And they, uh, the at this point, Adobe makes another move. So they move from Palo Alto back to Mountain View, California. Mm-hmm. Still not the final move for uh, Adobe, by the way. So you know, just to gear you guys up for another exciting talk about relocating a company. Working remotely, where you are, shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's something else that was happening at the same time. I'm sorry, you were going to say something, though. Well, it might be related to that. Are you you're talking about the uh, the Brothers Knoll? Oh, uh, yes. Yes. In the same time, in 1987, you have a PhD student named Thomas Knoll. Mm-hmm. And he was working on a program. It was a program that would let him display grayscale images on a monochromatic screen. Monochromatic meaning there's one color represented. But grayscale means that you could get different shades of that monochromatic color, which was kind of a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was an advance in display technology. Now we're talking about 1987. So for people who are used to these, you know, super high definition screens. It's kind of an unusual thing to think about, but we did not always have those. And so he kind of, you know, was playing around with this program and he showed it off to his brother, John, mm-hmm. who worked for a little uh, production company, um, a little like effects and production company, uh, industrial light and something, something. <laughs> uh, Magic. I wonder if he asked him if he was sleeping first. I don't. Are, are you sleeping, brother John? Um, also, a, 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 another fellow with a similar last name. Oh, wait, no, he was another brother named Glenn. Oh, I didn't even know about Glenn. I knew yes. about Thomas and John, but they they started to work. Uh, John had had recommended to Thomas that he look further into this uh, this program he had created, this dis- which he called Display. Um, and to develop this software further. And so they began to work, the brothers Knoll, on this software, and it eventually developed into a different program. Uh, they, they tried to name it, oh, I forget what it was. They were trying to name it uh, one, one, they, they came up with one name, but it was already taken. So they went to their fallback name. That fallback name has become something of a, uh, a staple on the web and, and in, uh, Publishing in general, that name is Photoshop. Yes. So Photoshop created by the Brothers Knoll, uh, and it, it was uh, pr- fairly primitive in its early days, but you know it's now become a verb, so <laughs> it's obviously important. Well, Adobe. It was verb. Adobe took notice of this, and in 1988, they decided to license Photoshop to Illustrator as an add-on product. Now, here's the another kind of funny thing. Adobe didn't really think at that time that Photoshop deserved to be a standalone product. They thought of it as just simply an add-on for Illustrator. They didn't think that it would ever be necessarily a revenue generator. Mm-hmm. Um so they just uh, they just said, all right, we'll just add, create this as an add-on for a product we have already published. They would obviously change their minds about that uh, in a couple of years. But uh, that was also when they produced what was called the Font Folio, mm-hmm. which is a hard drive that had the entire font library from Adobe stored on it. So you could buy a hard drive that had every single font Adobe uh, owned in its library. Mm-hmm. And it cost a paltry $9,600. Wow. Which, uh, in 1988, so, so in, in 2011 dollars, which was the latest I could get for a inflation calculator, that's about $18,000. That's a princely sum. It was a princely sum. It went from paltry to princely in one sentence, really. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and, and, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't the only ones working on these different kinds of technologies. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read in an interview with a, a guy named Paul Brainerd, uh, who uh, you may or may not have heard of. 
Jonathan is nodding. I have heard of him. Um, he, while while these guys were were doing these things, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Brainerd was, uh, you know, he came from a a, a newspaper publishing world. Uh, he actually was the editor of the University of Minnesota Daily. And, uh, you know, during graduate school while he was working there. And he was interested in finding a better way to do page layout at the newspaper. And, you know, as a former newspaper, newspaper man myself, I remember even, even with the help of computers having to, uh, still work on doing layout for pages by cutting the pages out and pasting them onto the, the, uh, the paper to be shot with a camera. Um, you know, by hand, you'd cut them out with an exacto knife and stick them on there with uh, hot wax. Uh, kind of a pain in the neck, uh, pain in the finger if you weren't paying attention. Um, and he said, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so he started a company named Aldous, uh, named for uh, Aldous Minutius, who uh, was sort of a typographer himself several centuries before that. Yeah. Um, just sort of a keep this in the back of your mind because he's going to come up again in the not too terribly distant future. Right, uh, which is actually our past. Well, yes. I just blew your mind. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he introduced a, a program called PageMaker in yeah. 1985, which put him sort of as a head-to-head competitor with Adobe mm-hmm. because they were coming out with similar kinds of products. They were, you know, Adobe was doing uh, the postscript for the printers. PageMaker was a, was sort of a nice compliment in, in this particular instance because it was able to... Uh, uh, create the pages which could use these fonts and would help uh, newspapers and other publishing houses take advantage of desktop publishing. Yep. Um, but they will not. Uh, they will not always be so complimentary, and in fact, they will get really, really complimentary uh, in the future. Yeah. So of that, our of our discussion. It, it, and at this the same around the same time, this is when Apple and even Microsoft began to sort of rebel against Adobe and their Type One uh, fonts. Because the the licensing fees were getting to be pretty expensive, and mm-hmm. so um, eventually, what this what this evolved into was that Apple and Microsoft uh, switched to TrueType fonts, which was something developed by Apple uh, for both Mac OS and for Windows. So those operating systems began to use Apple's TrueType as opposed to the Type One fonts from Adobe. That won't be the last time that happens. And uh, eventually, this actually <laughs> this actually led to the development of OpenType, which suddenly meant that no one ever had to worry about paying huge licensing fees ever again, because now you had an open format version of all these uh, font libraries that were um, theoretically, yeah, theoretically. <laughs> oh, your your mileage for the word open may vary. Yes. Uh, in 1989. Adobe ships a few new products. They, they ship Type Manager 1 and PostScript Level 2, and their revenue gets up to about $121 million. They've got around 383 employees, so things were going uh, fairly strong for this company. And you know, this is a pretty dramatic success story. You know, you look at that first year of revenues where it was, well, the first year it was zero, and the second right. year it was $85,000. And now they're already up to uh, over a hundred million. Uh, and in 1990, Adobe held a pre-release Photoshop workshop called Camp Adobe. Now, at this time, they had determined that perhaps Photoshop actually could stand on its own as a as a, a standalone software product. It did not necessarily have to be an add-on to something else. Mm-hmm. So, they held this pre-release workshop to kind of educate people about Photoshop as well as drum up excitement for this product. And then they shipped it a little bit later in 1990. They also shipped Illustrator 3 that same year. And that was the same year where another Adobe employee, Luann Seymour Cohen, tweaked the Adobe logo to make it uh, so that it it could easily scale to different sizes. It was a little... um, in its original format, it was a little more difficult to do that, but uh, she made some some tweaks to it to streamline that process, and the company was making around 169 million by then with 508 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, moving forward, once we hit 91, we start getting into the era where Adobe's gotten large enough now where they're looking around at similar companies 
that make products that either complement what Adobe already does or overlap what Adobe does. Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than uh, you know, rather than than simply just compete or try and create new products, you know, Adobe's gotten large enough now where they can actually look into acquisitions. And so in 1991, they acquire a company called Emerald City Software. And I feel like I've heard of them. Yeah. Did you? Were you off to see the wizard? No, they they designed um, font manipulation software. So Adobe sweeps them up, and uh, they release a few other products like Time Manager 2, Photoshop 2. Uh, and actually, at this point, Photoshop 2, you know, it's just the second version. It already begins to outsell Illustrator. Mm-hmm. So the program that had used Photoshop as just an add-on is now being uh, left behind by the add-on. Uh, Photoshop is is now doing quite well. That's also when Adobe launches a software uh, called Premiere. And Premiere is a video editing software program. So mm-hmm. uh, for video editors out there, they're probably very familiar, or at least they've heard of Premiere. I'm sure most of them have worked in it in some capacity. Uh, the original Premiere came out just for Macs. Uh, they were. It was not for Windows yet. And in fact, this is this is kind of the era where the Mac got the reputation as if you were someone who worked in audio or video editing, and you had a desktop computer and not some specialized, you know, proprietary machine. Mm-hmm. Chances are it was a Mac, because Macs were known for their uh, the the software support side for this kind of stuff. So uh, this was part of what gave Max that reputation was, you know, software like Premiere. Mm-hmm. Um, that same year, Warnock writes a memo about a project called Camelot. <laughs> it is a silly project. Uh, but Camelot is a code name for a product that would really push Adobe into the next level of its development. It's a product called Adobe Acrobat. Ah, yes. Working remotely. Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. 
There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Acrobat, let's talk about, you know, here's one of the issues that we have with the whole digital versus hard copy formats, right? If you have a digital format and you're trying to put it onto hard copy because of displays, you know, the different different resolutions, different sizes of displays. Uh, sometimes what you would see on your computer would not be what you would get if you sent it to a printer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you couldn't. And if you were to open that same document, uh, if you were to create a document in a, in a program and then open that same document on another computer, perhaps it has a different version of that program, then the layouts could change. So let's say that you have a, a uh, publishing software program and your buddy has a later version of that same program and you create this, uh, this, this really nice layout for a flyer that you wanted to, to distribute. You send it to your buddy because your buddy has access to a really awesome color printer. Your buddy opens it up on a newer version of that software, but because it's a newer version and there have been changes made since the, the version that you use to create that, it might change the layout. And suddenly that awesome flyer you made looks really amateurish, and it just doesn't look right. And it either requires you to create an inferior product or to spend even more time fixing problems that shouldn't exist. Adobe developed a file format, proprietary file format, that was designed so that once you laid things out in the way you want it, that's how it would stay, and it was independent of whatever platform you were using. And um, Adobe Acrobat was sort of the first step toward that. It was the the portable document file, mm-hmm. or PDF. And... Uh, PDFs are they're very useful because once you design the way the PDF looks and you set it that way, that's how it's going to look from that point forward, assuming you're not you know going in and opening it up and editing it afterward. So Adobe Acrobat was sort of their um, it was the, this this major project that would uh, create this PDF file format eventually. And uh, what's interesting is that, it would eventually become the standard for that kind of production mm-hmm. file. So at this at this time in ninety one, they hit a revenue of two hundred thirty million. They had seven hundred one employees, and uh, uh, it was it was really kind of the the yet another launching point for Adobe. I mean, it's a, another point in their history where they really started to um, to establish themselves as a dominant force because you know. The whole font thing was starting to slip away from them, but they were able to stay on top through the publishing side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, back in in 1992, yep, there were a couple companies named MacroMind, Paracomp, and Authorware that decided to merge. Uh huh. And um, they basically uh, had been working on a, a a piece of software called Director, which was a a tool that people would use to create uh, interactive content for uh, information kiosks and CD-ROM, uh, you know, basically CD-ROM packaging or, you know, the, the video that was on the disc itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they decided to call this company Macromedia. And, uh, you know, you, you if, you're, if you're new to technology, you may not necessarily have heard that name, but um, Adobe certainly was aware of of this company, especially after the in the mid 1990s, the World Wide Web started to become a place to do stuff, you know, p- place for people to go, and um, especially for, uh, I mean, they, they had several different technologies that competed directly with Adobe products. For example, uh, Illustrator, which is the vector uh, illustrating program, um, Macromedia had a freehand 
program. That was the name of it. The software was uh, Freehand, which was the uh, the direct competitor. Um, and, of course, that was a thorn in Adobe's side. But uh, what they really wanted to try to accomplish was something very much like Macromedia's Shockwave and Flash technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this was um, – these these technologies were uh, you know, these these companies merged in around the time that uh, Adobe was really getting a foothold in uh, in desktop publishing and, and during this time um, or after it directly after that they had made a name for themselves for all these different uh, uh, Photoshop and Illustrator uh, software like that um, so suddenly you know Adobe finds itself faced with a very capable competitor right. Um, and uh, especially for the web, they also came up with another tool um, called Fireworks, which uh, I was uh, excited to use because uh, I'm no no graphic designer by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, uh, I was doing some simple banner ads and things at that at that point around the time that that came out in uh, in the mid 1990s. And uh, Fireworks, there wasn't anything like it for uh, on the Adobe side because it it was sort of a combination of vector graphics and uh, bitmapped graphics mm-hmm. so that you could use the tools that you would use to to build things. Uh, you can resize them to any any size you needed and then convert it to a, a uh, raster file for use on the web. So if you had to make um, ads for a website like I did and you had to make them in multiple sizes like I did, um, you could uh, turn stuff around very, very quickly. And so uh, Adobe found itself going, wait a minute, these guys are these guys are pretty good. Um, and that all started with the, the merger of those two companies in, in around, uh, around 1992, yeah. according to the information I've got. Uh, that same year, Adobe acquired nonlinear technologies, which made uh, handwriting recognition software, and they also acquired OCR systems, and uh, OCR st- stands for Optical Character Recognition. Yep. So in both of these cases, you're talking about uh, companies that create software that allow a computer to take one form of input and uh, interpret that as text. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was, you know, clearly they were thinking about adding on to this whole uh, digital publication model they were they were pursuing. Right. Uh, that same year, they shipped Adobe Dimensions One, which was a 3D rendering software. So uh, they were really getting into what was considered to be the future of publication. Uh, they also uh, shipped a product called Streamline 3, which automated the conversion of bitmapped images into postscript line art. Uh, and at that year, they were making $266 million with 887 employees. Mm. Now, um, in 93, that's when Adobe officially introduced the portable document format, so mm-hmm. PDF. That was the same year that a, a, uh, a company called Hummingbird Limited, it's a cana- Canadian company that produced – uh, something called Common Ground. The Common Ground was exchange software mm-hmm. that uh, would convert Windows or Mac document types into a proprietary file format called digital paper. Well, that might sound familiar to you because that's kind of what the PDF file format is all about. Mm-hmm. So Common Ground launched an ad campaign that was uh, anti-PDF, anti-Adobe Acrobat to be specific, mm-hmm. and uh, ran all these different ads saying that uh, Adobe Acrobat was bad and that it was you know, no one should use it and it's it's going to uh, create a monopoly and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, they were they were the uh, to use um, tech marketing lingo. They were the eight hundred pound gorilla. Yeah. Of, uh, of graphics and desktop publishing at the time. So digital paper, if you're not familiar familiar with that term, but you are familiar with PDF, I think you can see how this battle turned out. Because <laughs> uh, 800-pound gorillas crush other smaller yes, animals? Yes, yes. The, the weak gorilla was stomped beneath the 800-pound gorilla's uh, feet. But yeah, the, the PDF file format did, in fact, become the industry standard. Digital paper did not. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that same year, uh, Adobe shipped the very first version of Photoshop that was available for Windows, which, of course, was Photoshop 2.5. Uh, so Windows users, yeah, Windows users get finally get a chance to use Photoshop. Uh, and the uh, Acrobat actually officially ships in June of 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the first version of Premiere, which is their 
again, their video editing software for Windows ships that year. So that so was it, Pre- Premiere 1 for Windows, whereas Premiere 3 for Mac came out that same year. Yeah, it took uh, it took a little while before the Windows products um, from Adobe caught up to the, the Mac products, just yeah. in, in terms of in development. But it, it wouldn't be long before they, they were basically working on the same version. Yeah, again, you're talking about you know uh, the Mac platform being seen as the the destination for video and audio editing mm-hmm. uh, and and even to some extent desktop publishing it was just seen as that that was more of a mac type use case whereas the pc was more kind of seen more as like a spreadsheets and uh, database management that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, it was an interesting perception which to some extent still extends to today uh, I still know that there are. I mean, I know plenty of people who work in video publishing, who uh, have used both Macs and PCs to create video, but have a uh, strong opinion about which one's superior. Yeah. Say that, or at least which one they prefer. Uh, so yeah, '93 they were making 313 million dollars that year, and they hit. 999 employees, but there's always room for one more. <laughs> That's for my Haunted Mansion peeps. Nice. Thank you. So uh, a 94 is a big year, and that's the year we're going to conclude this episode of Adobe, uh, our story about Adobe, because 94 was when uh, a few things happened. One was that Adobe started a venture capital fund called Adobe Ventures. Mm-hmm. Venture capital is all about finding businesses and investing in them uh, through self-interest. I mean, you're you're not doing it out of uh, some sort of you know because you think they're going to pay off in the long run, right? You're not doing it just because you 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 have this warm spot in your heart. You're doing it because you're thinking, hey, this business is working on something interesting. It ha- it relates to what we do. It would behoove us to invest in this company so that perhaps one day. They will produce something that we can then scoop up and devour, uh, although they probably don't say it like that. Uh, they also acquired a, a company called Laser Tools, mm-hmm. which is another company that was all about scaling different fonts. So Adobe's still not outside of out of that. And then they merge with that company that Chris alluded to earlier, Aldus. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was uh, an electronic publishing giant at the time. Yeah, they they uh, they really developed an op- uh, an opportunity to to fit together well. Yeah. Um, with their complementary technologies, and I think uh, that that Aldis really had a shot at at competing with them head on. But um, you know, ultimately they decided to uh, to join up. Yeah. Um, to take on the other competitors out there. Yep. And one of the uh, one of the big employees over at Aldis, uh, his name was uh, Bruce Chisholm, and Bruce yes. Chisholm would become a very important person in Adobe. Yes, uh, in in just a couple of years. In fact, he he had a sort of meteoric rise in the company. Uh, and the new company, the merged company between Adobe and Aldis, was uh, named Adobe Systems Incorporated. Uh, it, it updated that same year. It made updates to pretty much its entire line of products. And uh, the revenue hit $598 million. So they hit over a, a half billion dollars and had 1,587 employees. Now, granted, a lot of that was due to the, the acquisition, the merger. But uh, that kind of sets the stage for part two of our story about Adobe when things really start heating up and we get into yet another Adobe Apple spat. The font was just the – that was round one. Round two is going to take uh, uh, focus on a product we've already mentioned, but that does not yet belong to Adobe. So stay tuned. You can find out more. And if you guys have any suggestions for episodes that we should cover here on Tech Stuff, you should let us know, because otherwise we're just going to guess. But if you let us know, you can uh, send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again about Adobe, as it turns out, really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. 
You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 